You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hey, listeners. So in today's episode of Metamorphosis, we're breaking from the mold a bit as we hear from retired pediatric surgeon, Dr. Jeffrey Blair. Dr. Blair is going to present a reflection piece that he wrote and delivered during Grand Rounds just weeks before setting down his scalpel for the last time. Stick around to the end, and we'll finish off the episode with a mini Q&A. As always, thanks for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this episode as much as we did. Welcome to Metamorphosis, a podcast designed to help medical students navigate their medical careers. This episode is part of our reflection series where we zoom out a bit and consider our medical journeys in the context of those who have a little bit more hindsight. My name is Mike. And I'm Aiden. And today we're honored to hear from Dr. Jeffrey Blair. Dr. Blair has been in clinical practice for over 40 years as a pediatric general surgeon. His career has included a focus on research with over 50 publications. He has also been extensively involved in undergraduate surgical training as the Postgraduate Program Director for the UBC Training Program in Pediatric Surgery and Chair of the Royal College Specialty Committee in Pediatric Surgery. On top of all of this, he has also worked internationally in Uganda. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Blair. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. So you've written this piece that you're going to share with us today. The floor is yours. Why don't you start by setting the scene and take it away when you're ready? Okay. Well, the scene is this. Um, I started off in the auditorium of Vancouver General Hospital with lots of people there and people also online looking on, um, saying that reflection is a uniquely human endeavor and a uniquely good thing to do. As I careen toward retirement, I said at the end of this that month, um, I present to you this morning in a somewhat emotional manner, a very personal reflection on my life in surgery. I will read to you my personal love letter to someone you may know and who you too may love or learn to love. Dear surgery, I'm leaving you. It's not you, it's me. I no longer feel that I can be 100% committed to you anymore, and it is 100% commitment you demand and need. You have largely made me who I am today, and you have been my passionate but jealous mistress for the majority of my life. But now, after all those years, I am moving on and moving away from you. For so long, you and I have peered together into the telescope, together looking ahead and trying to discern with imperfect magnification what lay in front of us, what lay far ahead of us. Now I am turning that telescope around and I see now in tiny but discernible images what was behind us and how our relationship began, what brought us together, how I became enraptured by you, what I adored about you, what I hated about you, what we had and what was missing. I have used you as much as my identity as my vocation, but I am not you any more than you feel you are me. I was five years old, and after a number of painful sore throats, it was decided that little Jeffy needed to have his tonsils out. 
I vividly recall St. Patrick's Day, 1957, lying on a stretcher outside an operating room at Guelph General Hospital and looking back over my shoulder and seeing the concerned but encouraging face of my dad, a lawyer, winking at me that everything was going to be all right. I waited, scared, but not crying, in the chilly hall, and I saw the previous patient, still unconscious and looking very much like a dead body to my little boy's eyes, being gurneyed out of the room. Despite the passage of so many years, I can still see the mask descending onto my face, the smell of the ether drip onto its overlying cloth, and the doctor saying I should try to count to ten, getting to two, and then waking up with my throat very sore, the salty taste of blood in my mouth, and a nurse consoling me. Days later, and despite having had as much ice cream as I wanted when I was discharged, I made my dad promise, absolutely promise, that I would never again have to step foot in a hospital, never, ever again. My dad, years later, also recalled that promissory statement of his with a laugh, considering what career path I chose, and also as a lawyer, pointing out that he never did put that promise in writing. I remember as a young boy in grade three, maybe four, watching Ben Casey, a TV medical drama. My older sister would watch it because I think she liked Vince Edwards, the handsome, dark-haired, brooding actor who played the young and daring surgical resident, Ben Casey. I watched it because... Although it wasn't cartoons, which I definitely would have preferred, it was TV, and, well, it was TV. I vividly remember the opening scene of each episode where the professor of surgery, Dr. Zorba, would be lecturing to a group of ardent, white-coated students. He would draw symbols on the chalkboard, and as he drew each one, he would pronounce each of their meanings in sequence with deep-voiced profundity. Man woman, birth, death, infinity. A set of operating room doors would then burst open and a desperately sick patient on a gurney would come wheeling towards the camera, which would then pan over to the face of the young and intense Dr. Casey, putting on his surgical mask, readying himself to operate and save the patient's life. I wanted to be Ben Casey. My father was a litigation lawyer and subsequently a judge and manifestly loved the law, and my mother had been a social worker. But in high school, I was never tempted to pursue either of those vocational opportunities. A feature in physics was my preferred career path. The mysteries of deep space, gravity, space-time continuities, particle accelerators, and basketball were my passions for the majority of my teenage years. The Ben Casey emulation had been suppressed. I was a, quotation marks, knock, a sort of nerdy jock, living and breathing basketball and loving the high school science and math classes. I was chosen, along with a small group of other nerds in Ontario, nerdiness is now no longer the pejorative it once was, to attend a two-week physics camp for science-minded high schoolers at McMaster University. McMaster, I guess, was trying to attract more science undergrads I'd loved those two weeks. My project had me doing fascinating things with extrusions of ruby-colored glass strands, dynamically stressing them, measuring the hysteresis loops of their strain factors, Young's modulus and all that. 
and ending each experiment with the glass rod exploding into literally atomic-sized dust particles disappearing completely. I arrived home all excited, and I think my father was seeing my future as a university professor somewhere. Until I announced that, as nifty as it all was, there was no way I was going to pursue physics. I need to be working with people, I said. I've decided to go into medicine. It had been an epiphany, a decision made suddenly and most definitively. And it was not the last of a number of epiphanies I would have, was it, my dear? Entering the University of Toronto, I failed my first year university biology test. I was playing varsity basketball, basically playing basketball and studying, studying and playing basketball. My father on the phone, after confessing to him my test failure, simply asked me, well, do you want to be a doctor or a, he paused for effect, basketball player? Suffice it to say that whereas some amazing individuals can play high-end sports and also do well in school, I evidently could not. I quit the team and put my academic nose to the grindstone and got into U of T medicine. In those days, we had every Wednesday off classes in order to pursue electives, and my first elective was in spine surgery at one of the teaching hospitals. I was a green first-year student. I found the change room and put on scrubs. The orthopedic surgeon was extraordinarily kind and patient with me, showing me how to scrub, gown, and glove. I stood obediently and stiffly where I was told to stand, beside another big guy who was, I supposed, the ortho equivalent of Ben Casey. I saw the patient's back opened and the lamina removed in one area. I really had no idea what I was looking at. The resident was carefully dipping the pituitary forceps into a small, dark opening and emerging with tiny pieces of the patient's disc. Suddenly, the staff surgeon erupted. He mercilessly berated the resident on his clumsy technique. Like in a crazy dream or something, I heard him say, give the forceps to the medical student. Dreamlike, I quickly glanced around, convinced that there must be another medical student somewhere in that OR. But he meant me. I was shakily holding the instrument as the surgeon, now all calm and nice, was telling me to open and close it in midair. See how it works, he said. Now carefully open it and put it deep into that dark space there without touching that thing, because then he'd be paralyzed. Reach down till it stops, then close it and pull it up hard. I did as I was told, wondering if my bladder sphincters were going to hold. I pulled up a chunk of what I hope was a good-sized piece of disc, now realizing that it could have been potentially aorta, now that's the way to do it, the surgeon bellowed at Ben. I felt sorry for the resident who had been so demeaned, but at the same time flushed by the experience. I had operated. So, my darling, that's, I guess, when you first caught my eye. I saw to it that I got lots of elective time in various surgery electives, both during the regular academic year and in the summers, and got work at local hospitals, both acute and chronic care hospitals, as a student assistant, a strange arrangement, and one that certainly doesn't exist now. My pay was meager, but included free meals at the hospital cafeterias. I carried a pager. I did odd jobs, a.k.a. scut work, after hours, 
white blood cell counts, urinalyses, ESRs, and moving bodies to the morgue. I would happily volunteer to sew up the scalp lacerations of any local client pre-anesthetized by too much self-administered inebriant, or apply splints or reinsert G-tubes. I found a straightened coat hanger to be invaluable in that task, and of course assist in any OR that needed an obedient retractor. I was especially proud of how I could twirl the needle driver on my ring finger like a cowboy gunslinger. The click clack of the needle driver opening and closing was a romantic melody to my ears. There was no doubt that I was falling head over heels in love with you, but I'm not sure I realized it. I was confused, which I suppose is not too unusual for a young man in love. I went into a family practice residency, flirted shamelessly with rural GP work, OBS and gyne, and even psychiatry. But the residency took me in its second year to a small pulp and paper town in northern Ontario for three months where there was one general surgeon and five experienced GPs. That surgeon did everything and did it well. In my first week there, I assisted him in a few operations. You seem to enjoy surgery, Jeff, he said, almost like admitting I was sweet on a young lady. I admitted that I had always had a penchant for surgery. Fine, you're in charge. You can take care of my patients while I'm away, he said. Sure, you're heading out of town for the weekend? I replied, nope, got a brain tumor that needs removing. Figure I'll be gone for a couple of months. No worries, though, just a meningioma. His casual response was unnerving. Subsequently, over the next couple of months, as a family practice resident with one of those GPs as the anesthetist, and many times literally on the phone to the big city while I operated, I pinned a hip, plated a femur, sewed up numerous lacerations, struggled to remove an appendix, dealt with many traumas, including gunshot wounds, resuscitated and transported a ruptured aortic aneurysm to the city, successfully intubating the gentleman en route while buffeting in a tiny plane, and got pretty slick at tonsillectomies, always giving the kids lots of ice cream afterwards. Again, as if in a dream, soon thereafter I found myself walking down College Street in Toronto when a giant invisible hand pushed me up the stairs of the Banding Institute to stand in front of the Department of Surgery secretary, asking if I could apply to general surgery. Remember how a bird pooped on my head just as I was going to my first interview surgery? That's a story for another time. But thank you for that. What a lovely, albeit strange, thing to do to bring us together. And we've been together ever since. Those years we spent so intimate with each other when I was the general surgery resident were the crucible years. I still have flashes of recall of all night operating and the times when I fell asleep operating, the mistakes I made, the lives we saved, the friends I worked with, being yelled at and being praised, threatened and hugged by confused emotional patients and their families who knew we were caring and doing our best the risks we took that usually, but not always, paid off. And our teachers, each one a character with quirks and idiosyncrasies, and in many instances, you do it my way or it's the highway kind of attitude. The highway meaning that I would be relegated to holding retractors. Human, 
but at the same time straight out of storybooks with some having bigger-than-life personalities and others just funny. People you admire and would do anything to please, and people, even though you dislike them, you'd still do anything to please. Because they were in love with you, Surgery, like I was. Remember when I married Catherine just as I entered my chief residency year? As the chief resident at Sunnybrook Hospital, I was on one-in-one -one call. No general, vascular, or thoracic operation happened without my at least knowing about it. And probably scrubbing in on it. Sunnybrook was also the new trauma center for all of Ontario, and at times I felt like I was living in a MASH episode. Al Harrison, the venerable chief of surgery there, who seemed to personally carry me through my fellowship exams, promised at the first of that year that I would cut myself bow-legged, and he was right. I was so busy cavorting with you surgery every night and day that Catherine and I never once had dinner together that entire first year of our marriage. Not once except for the three-week holiday I took, where, if I wasn't studying, I was sleeping. She and I lived by the hospital, and I would spend night after night with you and leave her alone. Yet she has stayed with me. And with you and I, surgery, carrying on our rather intense affair, I really am in amazement that she has stuck around. Grateful, eternally grateful, but amazed, nevertheless. You'll recall how Catherine and I, during that three weeks, tried to get away by ourselves, a little bit of time away from you. We went camping, and as usually my thoughts and then our conversation drifted to you. You were always on my mind. You were always on my mind. I had done a pediatric surgery rotation for six months in my first year of general surgery residency, and quite frankly, I had hated it. At the time, you, and especially one of my mentor pediatric surgeons, were very demanding of me in those first years of knowing each other, and I felt inadequate. Talk of cloacal anomalies and other complex embryo pathology left me feeling just plain stupid. But I began to realize that as an R1, you're supposed to feel that way. I recall during that camping trip staring into the campfire as my wife and I talked about future possibilities. I was able to look back now that I was the chief resident in general surgery at Centerbrook, and I could see that for me, pediatric surgery had everything I wanted in a career. I could see that it was my angst as an R1 that had temporarily jaded my view of pediatric surgery. But with a few years of residency and experience under my belt, the scales had fallen away from my eyes. I learned that the sound of knocking from an opportunity sometimes is faint at first and becomes louder upon reflection. And it was a unique opportunity, for as it turns out that year, I was the only Canadian interested in pediatric surgery. Sick kids, as one of the only two pediatric surgical training programs in Canada at that time, had to take me. But I'm leaving out a part, aren't I? I'll get back to that. I stepped into those two years of fellowship training in pediatric general surgery with some of the same angst that I had when I was an R1. As we pediatric surgeons are wont to say, children are not just small adults. Facing bowel atresias, congenital diaphragmatic hernias, necrotizing enterocolitis, and 500-gram humans can be a bit daunting. But what a wonderful feeling it is when you find yourself doing exactly what you know you were made to do. 
surgery, you were at your loveliest. And for me, I think the most rewarding. Offered a job out here in Vancouver was finally with my wife and I, and then our first son, Alec, at 18 months of age, broke free of Toronto, along with you too, surgery. You and I had been made to believe that it was only in Toronto where my love for you could truly flourish. We had visited Vancouver, of course, to scout the job at the new BC Children's Hospital, and Dr. Graham Fraser, obviously desperate for a new partner to join him, had made us feel very welcome. But at each visit, the Vancouver rains had poured and poured. So we took that leap away from our homeland, Graham insisting that he had at least five other surgeons poised to take the job if I didn't. It was only when we stepped off the plane on July 2nd, 1985, when I saw the mountains blazoned for us in all their glory in the North Shore sunshine, when we remarked, there are mountains. And you and I, surgery, settled into a practice here, and here we have remained. But enough history, enough. What did we strive for together, surgery? What does anyone strive for? Truth, beauty, goodness. Arguably, there is nothing else. I maintain that joy, happiness, fulfillment, and all are all subsets of those three. And the quest for power, riches, recognition, being simply false signposts in a misguided quest for truth, beauty, and goodness. We blunder through a practice of surgery, garnering the badges of experience through the embarrassments of mistakes. In the early years, or at least as it was in my early years, you march as you blunder to the beat of one's schedule book, or now one's iPhone, I suppose, the bidding of one's secretary, and the so-called demands of practice. Pausing from time to time for vacation, a weekend, or an evening off, or even just that all too long a time between cases. I didn't reflect on truth or beauty or goodness or in any way the largeness of what I was doing. You had me running, surgery. You are quite insistent and unrelenting in that respect, my dear. However, I recall it was years after I started here when I was in the position of surgeon-in-chief at BC Children's Hospital and taking a course on leadership that I and the rest of the leaders' class were assigned the task of writing one paragraph on what we wanted to do, one paragraph which would embody all my ambitions. We did that, and the next day brought them into class, expecting to read them aloud. Our mentor said, no, tonight you'll take that one paragraph and distill it down to only one sentence. We groaned, but complied, expecting the next day to return to read them aloud, etc. No, again, the mentor said, Tonight, you'll each take the one sentence you've composed and distill it down to one phrase. One phrase that embodies what you are striving to do. I did it. I cannot speak for my leadership classmates. For the next day, we were told to simply keep that phrase secret and alive in our minds and hearts for the rest of our careers. I completed that assignment and amongst the thousands of assignments I've done since I've entered school at age five, I can honestly say that it was one of the most valuable. What was my phrase? I'm not supposed to share it, but you and I are so close and have shared so much, I shall tell you. It was simple, yet for me full of meaning and encouragement. 
help some children. Simply that. Help some children. You know, surgery, there have been many times when I have been down, depressed, angry, sad, frustrated, and feeling lost, I suppose. That simple phrase to remind me of what I want to do has been there as a guide. It's unassailable. It guided me as I was the head of surgery at Children's. It has spurred me on as I partnered with my Ugandan friends to improve pediatric surgery in that country. It got me out of bed at 2 a.m. to see some kid with abdominal pain. It boosts me up on the podium when, looking like a fool, I tell every UBC medical class to beware the child who vomits green. And they seem to remember that. Dear Surgery, with all love and respect, you had me running this way and that. It's good to have a grounding principle, a simple bright star to steer me. Helping some children, I suppose, is the goodness that I have strived for. And what a beauty, dear Surgery. Some indeed may shun you because of your lack of beauty. They turn away, avert their gaze at your surgical workshops of blood, guts, and gore. But wasn't the operating room our love shack? We know. But don't talk about it much, how we find a Wilms tumor bed, the cancer having been extracted without spillage, cleared of all evidence of malignancy, dry and hemostatic, and ready for closure. A beautiful sight. I admit now that in each case, I would pause for just a moment or two, ostensibly looking for any errant bleeder that may appear after the evil Wilms was in the bucket and gaze fondly at the loveliness of what we had done. And it was not unlike the appreciation of an orange summer sunset or cherry blossoms in the spring. An evanescent pulchritude, quick to disappear just as the sun dips below the horizon or the abdomen is closed and out of sight. True surgeons know of what I'm talking about. The admiration of a perfectly crafted vascular anastomosis or an ideally constructed Rouen Y. It is artistry. I could always tell the medical student who was a surgeon at heart when, after maturing a colostomy, they would spontaneously remark on its beauty. Only a surgeon would appreciate the prettiness of a stoma. The truth shall set you free, my father would often quote. He used that phrase in so many contexts. When, for only a brief few weeks, I struggled as to whether I should pursue a career as a lawyer, like he was, rather than an MD, he told me the truth of who I was. As a father, he knew me better than I knew myself. He pointed out that I was a doctor, not a lawyer. A doctor wants and needs the truth, he said. Lawyers aren't as much interested in the truth as they are interested in just convincing others what the truth may be. You, surgery, and we surgeons are a real show. We often take credit for what we have done, what lives we have saved, and what pain and suffering we may have alleviated. But the truth is, we are nothing and nowhere without the others who support us and toil with us. I, we, tend to forget that and forget to be grateful for those who have made our work successful. Truth is a tough part of love, isn't it, surgery? Telling patients that there's nothing more we can offer them, admitting our failures, 
our missteps. And now, in my late 60s, I'm admitting that the truth is I'm not able to do the job of our younger surgeon. At this age, the scientists who study these things show us the truth that our abilities to perform at our peak, to deal with complexity, to do intricate manual work, all have a definite downward and steep inflection, as does our ability for self-assessment. Yes, I could carry on this affair with you, surgery, through the ages 68, 69, even into my 70s. And with my decreased self-assessment capabilities, I would probably think I was doing a good job. The brutal truth is that I would be placeholding a valuable spot for a new surgeon, and people would soon start to whisper, I hope they weren't whispering before I retired, out of earshot, wondering, when's the old guy going to retire? The truth is that neither I nor anyone is indispensable. Like the lawyers, we may be able to convince ourselves and perhaps a few others that we are critically necessary, but the truth is quite definitely otherwise. Oh, and remember how I said I'm leaving out a part? Life can be, as Joseph Conrad stated, a crop of inextinguishable regrets. And truth is, along with beauty and goodness, a worthy and glorious pursuit in a career and life. The part I left out was that I had the chance, but couldn't avail myself of very early in my career, to spend one to two years in the Boston Harvard Laboratory of Judah Folkman. Judah, a pediatric surgeon, was the brilliant scientist who did the pioneering research into tumor angiogenesis and most likely would have been awarded a Nobel Prize for his research had he not passed away a few years ago. I had cold called him one day as a resident with an idea I had to invoke angiogenesis as a means to revitalize ischemic myocardium. He was an incredibly approachable and open-minded gentleman, and based only on that phone call, he invited me to visit his lab and discuss the idea, which I eagerly did. He subsequently offered me a funded position in his lab after I visited him, and we had discussed the concept but the subsequent timing of my pediatric surgical fellowship and then an unpredictable evaporation of some of Dr. Folkman's funding precluded that experience for me. Whereas I suppose I have made some contribution to the surgical literature, it has been truthfully relatively inconsequential, and my lack of research training is an inextinguishable regret for me even still. Way too late now. Together, surgery, we could have pursued scientific truths and perhaps answered at least a few small questions that needed answering, maybe even answered some larger questions. Some younger people falling in love with you should think on this. Truth, beauty, goodness. I ask myself whether I pursued those three as vehemently as I should have. Surgery. And soon, without you, I ask how am I to continue that chase don't worry about me. I'll find a way. And I shouldn't worry about my life without you. Remember when I said, I am leaving you and it's not you, it's me. It is me. It's me now and the way I must approach my life without you. I must not take myself too seriously. And I have my wife who grounds me. Thank God. A couple of months ago as I began to really see retirement looming large, I said to Catherine, you know, 
It will be sometime in the late June when I'll operate for the last time. I'll finish my last case. I'll peel my surgical gloves off for the last time and snap them into the trash, never to don them again. My surgical career will come to a close and it will be a wistfully melancholy moment. Her reply, oh, get over yourself. She is full of good advice, but as you can tell, I have a penchant for the wistful. And as I leave you, I cannot help surgery, but be reflective on our relationship. Our relationship was one of a strange love, platonic, but in a very palpable way, physical as well. I hated being pulled in five different directions by you, surgery. I hated so many times how insistent and uncompromising you could be. But I never would say that if I had to do it over again, I would choose another lover. Joseph Conrad, one of my favorite authors, wrote, I don't like work. No man does. But I like what is in the work, the chance to find yourself your own reality, for yourself, not for others, what no man can never know. They can only see the mere show and never can tell what it really means. You and I, surgery, you and I. You understand. Goodbye, and as they say, it's been a slice. Jeff. P.S. I'll always love you. Bravo. That was amazing. Dr. Blair, thank you so much. That was a really moving testament to a career in which you obviously devoted yourself entirely. And it's clear to me that your work at some point transcended being considered just a job and became something much more sort of substantial to you. So with our few remaining minutes, I'd love to be able to discuss a few topics further, if that's okay with you. Sure. It seems like in general, surgery is more commonly personified as something like an abusive drill sergeant. But interestingly, you anthropomorphized it as a demanding or jealous lover. Did you always feel this way? And is this something your colleagues would share as well? Um, yes. I, I don't think it ever bubbled up to uh, full consciousness as being a demanding demanding lover that concept of of it being a jealous mistress is is not my thought per se in fact medicine um and some other careers i suppose uh, that are very demanding have often been labeled as the jealous mistress taking you away from your family and your spouse and and so forth as a as i suppose never having experienced an actual jealous mistress, I'm happy to <laughs> oh, know. Um, you're, you're aware of that. You're keenly aware. When I reflect back on my career, I, I'm, I was keenly aware of, of the pull that surgery had. Uh, it was uh, an interest that was a burning flame, somewhat like a love. Um, so it would draw me away. I, I, I suppose some other people might have a a burning desire to pour over their stamp collection and maybe feel the same thing. I'm not sure. But um, I never looked upon it as a job. 
it was it was my life it's uh, it, i could see it in some people and maybe even in myself becoming part of my identity but uh i i tried to resist that the idea of it being a jealous mistress it would bubble up every once in a while and i would hate it i can remember hating it sometimes being pulled away from my family being pulled away from my sleep being pulled away from my meals being pulled away from this that or whatever i was being pulled away from and yet i felt that i, I wanted to be pulled away it wasn't that i had to be pulled away or i did it out of begrudging duty i suppose there was the occasion time when when i felt like oh god i gotta do this and i don't want to but my wife said at one time <clears throat> when I was called in, we were planning something, I don't know, about to go to a movie or I don't know, something very banal, but enjoyable as a as something you do with uh, your family or your spouse. And I, my pager would go off and I'd answer it and my resident would say, well, you know, uh, we've got to operate or we've got to come in here and deal with this sick child. And I would turn to my wife and say, I'm sorry, dear, but I've, I've got to go. And she was, of course, very, very understanding. But at the same time, she was very realistic and said, oh, go. And don't give me that malarkey about your sorry. You know you want to. That's something else you touched on in your piece. The strain the job had on your relationship with your wife and your family. So I was wondering, do you have any advice on how to maintain and keep those relationships strong when the job is going to demand so much of your time? Well, I'll be quick to answer that, saying that I have an extremely understanding wife who still, I hope, understands me. Um, <clears throat> because there are still challenges, even though I'm not drawn in the middle of the night, etc., uh, as, I, as I was then. Um, but... As many times as I was drawn in, uh, inconveniently, uh, one might say, uh, there was lots of time for family. I, my wife and I have raised three uh, sons, all of whom are now adults. And I, I felt that whereas there were times when maybe I missed some event in their life, uh, a soccer game or whatever, I nevertheless did actually have time to be very uh, much their father. Um, meal time, for instance, was a, an important time when they were very young. Uh, bedtime was very important. Reading them stories. I, I coached their baseball teams, their basketball teams. That's what I particularly enjoyed. Their soccer teams, knowing nothing about soccer, and even helped in their hockey practices. So I, I don't think uh, that I was an absentee father. Um, nevertheless, there were times when um, my wife would, uh, would be doing the majority of the parenting. There's no doubt about that. I, I'm not naive to that. It's difficult. You have to work at it. it you can't just say, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I latch in on in my life to an understanding life partner and it's all up to him or her 
and I'll just go about selfishly just doing my career. Was I selfish sometimes, though, in the focus on my career? I suppose so, yeah. Um, I forget the person who said this, but he was a psychiatrist, actually, many years ago. I was, I was a family practice resident, and there was some article this gentleman wrote for some journal, and I read that in, the, in a career of medicine, whether it be surgery or psychiatry or whatever, there are times when, when uh, you have to understand when your patients come first and you have to actually put your family second. At the same time, you have to also understand that there are times that your patients have to understand that your family comes first and they have to be second. And you have to organize that, of course. Um, I, I had colleagues that when they took a vacation, a well-deserved vacation, they never would admit it to their patients. They would say, well, I have to, I won't be around for the next week. I'm handing over care to my colleague. Uh, I have to be at a conference or this or that. In other words, giving an excuse to the patients that that they'll be away but it's really just business it's part of being a, a surgeon that i'm away when in actual fact it was a little white lie they were actually going on vacation <laughs> i took a different approach when i took vacations and i took my share of vacations they're extremely important and that includes just weekends off as well when they came along I would explain to the parents of the sick children I dealt with, I said, um, I won't be around for the next week. I'm handing my care, uh, the care of your child over to my colleague whom I trust and you should trust too. And the reason why I'm not gonna be around is because I need some time off. I cannot recall ever a parent of a baby or a sick child ever saying, no, Dr. Blair, no, please don't leave us please. Instead, they would say, oh, absolutely, Dr. Blair, go, go have a good week off, get rested. You'll be a better doctor when you come back. And, uh, you know, we'll trust your colleague and, and, and hope for the best. So patients realize, if you give them the chance, that sometimes your family has to come first and yourself has, you have to be selfish in that regard. Um, there were many times when I felt I needed to be recharged. I needed to connect or reconnect with my family and perhaps feel felt a bit disconnected. A long-winded answer to a short question. Sorry. Something else we wanted to talk about and something else that really stood out during your piece was what sounded like a regret during your career was not being involved in research more. What is it specifically about research that put it at a lower priority while you were practicing but now seems so important and impactful in hindsight? Um, it was a timing thing. It was, um, it, it, it would take too long to go into a lot of details, but the timing of when I was to start my fellowship and the availability of a, of a fellowship for me was suddenly, very suddenly set at a certain date that same date when I was to go to Boston 
and do a, at least a year, maybe two years of research, uh, I had to choose. And I mentioned Judah Folkman, a wonderful man, and I was in a quandary. And I phoned him and and said, look, I, I suddenly this opportunity to do a fellowship in pediatric surgery has come up. And, and, and yet I have said to you that I was going to spend a year with you. He said, and he said, in no, with no hesitation, he says, "No, take the fellowship job. You have to, you have to grab that bird in the hand." We can defer, he says, some time that you'll spend a year or two with me in the lab. But right now, if you have the opportunity to do a fellowship in pediatric surgery, you take it, if that's been offered to you. And so he says, "And by the way, <laughs> I was going to phone you," he said. My funding for your position actually just in the same day had been extracted. Uh, so it was sort of a, a twist of fate that it all worked out. But I, I do wonder what my career would have been like if I had spent a year or two in that in scientist lab. I cannot emphasize enough that Julia Folkman was a profound thinker. Um, he was the type of scientist who, who could take a very complex subject and describe it to anyone and they would understand it. Uh, Albert Einstein talked about the person who really understands his subject material or her, her subject material is somebody who can explain it to somebody in the sixth grade and they will understand. Judah Folkman was that type of person. He would take very complex um, cellular processes of angiogenesis and such like and make it understandable to everyone in an audience and a very patient man and so partly I regret not having had that foundational experience of learning good scientific research um, but I also regret not being able to spend that year or two with with a, a man like that that, as I say, would have won the Nobel Prize, I, I think, if he hadn't died prematurely. Could you tell us further about your work in Uganda, what that looked like, and how and why you were involved? Yeah. Uh, to describe that, I'll, I'll, I'll hearken back to uh, 2001. In 2001, I had a, uh, I was, my age clock was clicking over uh, to a certain significant age if one ascribes to the base 10 numeric system as I do. I was turning 50 and and my three sons and my wife and I were listening on a road trip to um, CBC or something and somebody said that people when they turn 50 should go on a pilgrimage of some sort and it can be a pilgrimage of travel or just a pilgrimage of doing something that is meaningful to them. It has many definitions. It, it, it sparked a family discussion. I remember my three boys in the back seat saying, well, dad, you ought to do that. They were youngsters back then. Yeah, you ought to do that, dad. And my wife said, yeah, you're about to turn 50. Yeah, you should do something like that. So I thought about it. And, and out of the blue, the Canadian Network for International Surgery came up with this opportunity to go to Uganda. Um, and I reflected on the fact that ever since I was a little boy, since the time I would watch with my sister Ben Casey, I also felt this strange, and it was strange, desire to go to Africa. And I didn't know much 
about Sub-Saharan Africa and the Canadian Network for International Surgery it said a trip to Uganda for surgeons was a possibility and and uh, they would they would sort of give us a bit of a tour of the healthcare facilities there and orchestrate the thing and I thought oh, that's great Uganda it looks like it's center of Africa I'll go long story short I went and um, thinking that I would be joining a, a gaggle of other surgeons there, I found that I was the only surgeon on the trip. <laughs> the Canadian Network for International Surgery inter, uh, introduced me uh, through channels to the only pediatric surgeon in Uganda. Now, Uganda is a country that has the same population as Canada. And at that time, the population of Canada and Uganda was each about 35 million. Um, half of the population of Uganda is 15 years of age or less. Half, 17% of Canada is that age. So a huge contingent of youth. They had one pediatric surgeon in 2001. Canada had 65 pediatric surgeons. So I met Doreen Barabamali, and she took me through the hospital. She described her busyness i was overwhelmed and uh, basically we became friends and that friendship then over the next few years burgeoned into me taking other trips with other people um from children's hospital to uganda at the invitation of doreen and and operating with her and setting up educational modules and I learned just as much if not more from these trips to Uganda and operating with Doreen and, and soon others uh, that they learned anything from me I'm sure anyway it it built up and the key element of this is that since 2001 I and others at BC Children's Hospital but I guess I was the the lead person of this, or not that I take any great credit, it was just happenstance, uh, we've developed a relationship with Ugandan surgeons there, with the um, uh, with the nurses there, with hospital administrators there, and uh, that has resulted in us at BC Children's Hospital training now three young surgeons to become pediatric surgeons, they, in turn, have trained other surgeons in Uganda. And whereas they had one pediatric surgeon in 2001, they now have nine pediatric surgeons, soon to be 10. And we continue to have this relationship, interrupted, obviously, by COVID. But it's all about developing a relationship. Many people... I've been told before I went to Uganda what to expect. Uh, a surgeon with the Canadian Network of International Surgery, Ron Lett, told me before I went, he says, now, Jeff, they'll welcome you with open arms when you arrive. And they did. They're extremely friendly people. He says, but they won't actually trust you until you've been there three times. And in retrospect, it was my third trip to Uganda. Suddenly, the, that relationship with my Ugandan friends became real and and really matured into something that was useful for both sides. Mistake I think that some people make is that they build on 
pillars of relationships with, say, surgeons or, or uh, other healthcare people in other countries based on, say, oh, education. Great, that's a pillar of our, we have, we have a relationship with country X, who is a poor country, and, and our university is, is leading with that, those people in that poor country, and, and we'll, we'll make foundational elements of education, service, and research. Um, we at BC Children's Hospital have developed this. This has grown organically, sort of the friendship with Uganda, and realized that the key element of all this is actually relationship. There's a word for friend in Lugandan. It's Makwano, and uh, so we developed what we call a Makwano ship. Um, we sort of understand each other, but it's a it's a it is a friendship. It's not an institutional relationship. It's not a money-changing sort of facility thing. It's a, it's just a friendship. It's just friends that I have in Uganda and friends that they have here, including me. We work together for each other's benefit. And it's all about, dare I say it, it's all about helping some children. So as we come to an end today... Dr. Blair, do you have any final pieces of advice or wisdom for aspiring physicians and or surgeons? Other than to beware the child that vomits green. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we'll, we'll accept that as a given. Um, <laughs> advice or pieces of wisdom? No, I don't have any particular wisdom, except that by and large, it doesn't have to be every day or every minute of every day or even every week, but by and large, You've got to, if you're not having fun, if you don't feel a sense of fulfillment, um, then probably you're doing something wrong. Um, surgery or any field of endeavor should give you that sense of fulfillment. That doesn't mean to say you'll feel comfortable with it. Doesn't mean to say that if you're a surgeon, every operation you go into, you'll feel a total comfort and lack of fear. I was afraid every day going into the operating room, every day. And there were times when I felt the imposter syndrome, like, oh my gosh, if people really knew that I was actually a bit fearful about this, but you learn to use that fear, that worry, that angst, to the benefit of your, your patients. There are three things you have to do to be a good doctor. And they are in order. You have to care. You actually have to give a damn. And then you have to think. And you guys are learning, all, incorporating all sorts of knowledge and ways of thinking that will enable you to do that. And lastly, you have to act. You have to do something. Now that something sometimes is surgical therapy, medical therapy, or simply being with your patient in their difficult journey. Maybe a referral to somebody who knows something better to do. But to care, to think, and then to act. That's what you have to do. And do your best at it. And have fun, or try to have fun while you're doing it.
Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Blair. We really appreciate you making yourself available to share a bit of your story and inspire the next generation of physicians. Well, you're welcome. It was a, it was a slice, as I said. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Blair. And to you, our listeners, thank you for joining us today. For more episodes of Metamorphosis, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you the utmost health and safety. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 